0: Hey, good morning to you. How are we doing? You sound surprisingly awake for it being daylight savings and all. That's excellent. That's, hey, way to go, coffee team and the hospitality out there. I see a lot of coffee in hands this morning. Um, you know, I was talking to some friends this week who were pregnant, um, or they were pregnant. If you missed it at the top of service, uh, Phil and Callie had their baby yesterday. Uh, and so... Yeah, it's, um, we're super excited for them. I can't wait to meet them. It's going to be great. Um, but anyway, we were talking about baby names, and um, gosh, it's such a hard thing picking a baby name because um, everybody has an opinion, right? Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, and, and finally, maybe when you think finally we've landed on a name that we can both agree on and it seems is widely going to be a good name, then someone comes along and says, no, I had a bully named Steven in the seventh grade. You can't do that. And they ruin the whole thing. Um, Everybody has an opinion. It's a very difficult thing, but there are some names that nobody has to ruin, uh, that we all just intuitively and instinctively stay away from them. Uh, Can you think of one of those names? Yes. Judas. Yes, someone knows where we're going. Adolf. Yeah, not a lot of baby Adolfs running around on the playgrounds these days. Any others? Jezebel, that's a great one. Did I hear Karen in the back there? That's my <laughs> wife's name. Uh, but no, it, it's true, and K- Karen knows this. And no one wants to be called a Karen these days, unless you're my Karen. Um, and, and Karen still doesn't want to be called that. What do you want to be called? Okay, we'll keep going. And hey, did you know, uh, do you guys know the male form of Karen? Chad. So, yeah, we're quite the couple, her and I. You can just call us, hey, you two over there. Um, yeah, we're quite the couple, her and I. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, someone said it earlier. Judas is another one of those names. Um, does any, anybody here know someone named Judas? No, not a lot of parents naming their kids Judas, even if it's a hard labor. Oh, does someone know a Judas over here? That's wow. Okay, I'm going to have to hear the um, story. Uh, where is this person born, just out of curiosity, do you know? Mexico. Okay, so maybe it's a cultural thing, because another one is there's not a lot of people naming their kids Jesus, but you do have Jesus as a pretty common name. So so maybe I'm just speaking to one culture here, but at least in our culture, not a lot of people naming their kids Judas. Uh, Even if the labor was really hard, it's not like, hey, you got to go back and amend that one. We just don't do this. And today, we're going to see in our text why nobody, in this culture at least, names their child Judas. So if you've got a Bible, grab it. We'll be in Mark chapter 14, uh, where we've come to another one of Mark's famous sandwiches. Uh, Now, if you're new here, don't get hungry. Uh, This is a literary technique, not a a menu item here. Uh, We are in this series through the Gospel of Mark, which is one of four biographies of Jesus' life in the Bible. And one of Mark's favorite literary techniques is he'll use this thing known as the sandwich technique, where he will take one story and shove it in the middle of another story. Um, so that the middle story can kind of give you commentary on and greater understanding of the main story around it. And what we have in our text today is we get a story about Judas. That'll be the bread of the sandwich. And then we get a story about uh, a woman that kind of forms the uh, inside of the sandwich. And by um, contrasting these two off of one another, um, Mark's going to tell us something profound about Jesus and how he wants to impact our lives today. Are you ready? All right, Mark chapter 14. We will pick it up in verse 1. We read this. It was now two days before Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to arrest him, that's Jesus, by stealth, and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people." Okay, now skip down to verse 10. We're going to get the whole uh, bun right now. We're going to get the bottom layer now. Verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who is one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order p- to betray them. him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and they promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. So, we're going to start with the uh, bun of the sandwich. And what we're seeing here is that uh, things are really coming to a head. We are now on Wednesday of Passion Week. That's two days before the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a.k.a. Passover. And, um, man, things are really coming to a head. Uh, You've got the religious leaders. They've decided they want to kill Jesus. After that showdown in the temple, there's just no going back from that. But they realize... We can't kill Jesus during the Passover because the city's packed and Jesus is popular with the crowds and we we can't have the crowds getting mad at us. And so they go, okay, we're going to have to wait for some other time once the feast passes. And, And so they get together to have this brain trust meeting. How can we do this sneakily? How can we do this underhandedly? Which, by the way, if your plan begins with how can we do this and no one knows about it, you're probably doing something sinful and stupid. Um, These guys get together and say, How can we do this sneakily so that nobody knows? And um, in walks Judas Iscariot, verse 10. Um, Mark tells us he's one of the 12. That's saying, Dear reader, in case you missed it, this is one of Jesus' inner circle. This is a guy that doesn't belong in that room. This is uh, one of the guys that way back in Mark chapter 3 when we first met him, Jesus has all these crowds following him. He has several disciples, but of the crowds he picks out 12 men and he says to them, "Uh, I'm calling you so that you can be with me, have relationship with me, and from that relationship of life and love I'm going to send you out to proclaim the good news that I've brought into this world. That's What he called Judas to do. Judas was one of his inner circle that received this call. And that's exactly what we've seen Jesus do for the last several chapters. For the last three years, Jesus spent time with Judas. He shared his life with Judas. They traveled on the road together. They shared their stories with one another. They helped one another. They served one another. Like Think about anyone you've spent significant time with. Um, maybe you had a roommate in college you guys just did a bunch of life together you formed this deep relationship where you were bonded with one another some of you are looking around right now like i could see why judas wanted to kill jesus okay well here's the difference between jesus and your college roommate jesus was sinless okay so uh, jesus in all of this time together had only invested love cared for judas never once sinned against him And at the end of three years of life together, of sharing life and investing in one another, Judas, one of the twelve, turns on Jesus, the one who had invested so much in him and betrays him. And this is a a shocking betrayal. Um, This is why nobody names their kid Judas. Um, it's, It's bad enough if you betray a sinful person. Like, anybody know any Benedict Arnold's? No. Okay, so that's bad enough if you betray a human that's flawed and kind of a mixed bag like you and me, but Judas betrayed God who never sinned against him, only loved him, and gave three years of his life, gave him the best he had, and Judas turns on him. This is why nobody names their kid Judas. I just haven't met the person, Christian or not, who's like, I think Judas is really just misunderstood, you know? Like, most people look at this, regardless of what they think about Jesus, and go, that's a bad friend, that's a bad guy, I don't want to name my kid after that. This is a shocking betrayal. And so, the question is, why would Judas do this? Um, Why would he turn on Jesus? Why, Why is this so unimaginable to us today? What could have possibly motivated it? And well, that's actually what the middle of the sandwich is here to help us understand. And so let's keep that question in mind today. Why would Judas turn on Jesus? Let's keep that question in mind as we now look at the middle of the sandwich. We'll pick it up in verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he, that's Jesus, was reclining at table, a woman came in with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So, in the middle of this sandwich, we get this story about a woman doing a beautiful thing for Jesus. Um, At least, those are Jesus' words. The disciples think she's crazy. Uh, they, if they were telling the story, the heading would be a crazy woman does something super crazy for Jesus. That's, that's kind of their summary on it. And, and let's look at it because um, one of the things I hope you might see today is the line between beautiful and crazy might be thinner than you imagine. Um, let's look at it. Uh, we learn that Jesus is reclining at table. Now, this doesn't mean he has his feet up on the table. Some of you moms are like, "I want my kids to follow Jesus in every way, but that one—that's um, not what this is saying." Reclining at tables, first-century talk for enjoying a long meal together. And so, what this is saying is um, that Jesus—he was having an unhurried meal with Simon and with his friends. He wasn't hurried. He didn't rush out of there. Maybe the way we would say it today is, he ordered dessert. He was present. With Simon and his friends. Now, that might sound unremarkable to you, but I want to point out where we're at in the story. We're two days before Good Friday. This is two days before Jesus will die for the sins of the world. Do you think he had some things on his mind at this point? Yeah. Two of you do. Yep, I, I think he probably had some things on his mind. He's been predicting this since before he got to Jerusalem. He knows what's coming. He's got some things on his mind. And yet I want you to see this. Even with a very busy schedule ahead, he makes time to have this meal with Simon and his friends. He makes it a priority to be present. Because I hope that you'll see this today. Um, it's, life is about relationships. And when we slow down to make space to be present with other people, that is where real life happens. And so look, I know some of you are like, oh, I have a busy job or I'm in a busy season. I don't have time to have meals with people. I would just point out, if Jesus had time, so do you. Jesus made time for this. And I'm not just pulling out one random thing. We've kind of missed this in Mark's gospel because Mark has been so fast-paced in how he's told the story so far. If you read the other gospels, you will see that Jesus, this is a staple of his life. Long meals with people. Some of the best ministry in Jesus' life happens around the dinner table as he is present with people, as he reclines a table, and has relationship with those around him. This was a key part of Jesus' life. And so before we move on to see what happens on this evening, I just want to ask you this question. When's the last time you reclined at table? Um, When's the last time that you had an unhurried meal where your only agenda is to know, to be known, to love, and to be loved by those that you are with, whoever God places around your table? Um, Now look, I know some of you are like, life is crazy. We don't have unhurried meals with five and six-year-olds in the house. Okay, I'm not saying to be legalistic about it being a relaxed dinner. It can be plenty chaotic, and yet you can still be present with a five and six-year-old at the table. Um, Jesus is present with these disciples, and they're going to act like five and six-year-olds in our text. It's perfectly possible. And so I I just pulled this out to say this. We, We have gone all the way to the end of Jesus's life. I can't believe I haven't said it so far. This was one of Jesus's great ministry strategies. And I think as disciples of Jesus, we would do well to pay attention to it. Because life is about relationships. And when you slow down to be present in relationship with people, that's where things get interesting. Um, That's certainly what happens on this evening. So um, Jesus, he's reclining at table, and a woman comes up to him, and she breaks open a jar of perfume, and she pours it on his head. Now, unless you are very charismatic, this sounds crazy to you. Some of you are like, bust it out. I've got my anointing oil. I'm ready to go here. Um, Let me me just say this. Uh, This was actually a common way of greeting people, of showing hospitality in the first century. So um, the fact that she's pouring something on his head, I know that seems wild to us in a very different cultural setting. That's not the part that's shocking. This is how you would show hospitality to your guests. Maybe the way we would say it these days if, is if you came over to my house and I said, hey, um, could I take your coat? Could I get you something to drink? That, that's what's going on here. Um, so what's shocking is not that she does it. What's shocking is the extravagance with which she does this. Um, Mark tells us he, she uses... No ordinary oil. She uses pure nard. Um, and, and from the way he describes this jar, um, most commentators believe it was probably a family heirloom, um, something that gets handed down from one generation to the next, to the nest. This would be kind of your nest egg, something that you would hold on to. Um, and, and for some of you, are like, that's silly that your nest egg would be perfume. I'm sure if you could tell them about Bitcoin, they would think it's silly that you put your money in some computer on the Internet. Every culture does it differently. This was her um, inheritance. This was a family heirloom. Um, and what we know for certain is it was super valuable. Uh, Mark tells us it was worth um, more than 300 denarii, which if you look in your footnotes, that's more than a year's salary. So, so just envision your annual salary for a moment. That's how much this is. And she uses it in an instant on jesus and i want you to just close your eyes maybe and picture the scene here because this is pretty crazy close your eyes and imagine you're at dinner with jesus you're reclining at table and in 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 walks this woman And, and she goes to anoint jesus's head and, and, you know, that's common enough. You've seen that before. So, so you just turn away and you continue your conversation around the dinner table. Um, you don't think anything of it until all of a sudden you hear this crack. Yeah, that, that, that's funny. And then all of a sudden this um, incredible aroma fills the room. Um, Something so strong, something so profound. Maybe like nothing you've ever smelled before. Maybe this is the nicest thing you've ever smelled in your life. Because you grew up in Galilee working a blue-collar job. You didn't associate with royalty. And so all of a sudden, this incredibly costly perfume breaks open in the room. The room is filled with this aroma. And so you look over, you're like, what's going on? And you see the broken jar. You see Jesus drenched. And you realize... That this woman has just used her entire life savings on a single moment of hospitality. Okay, now open your eyes. Can you understand why the disciples would say, this is crazy? (laughs) Yeah. This is crazy. Um, This isn't how people did things. This is shocking. And, and, and so they, they look and they, they see this. And so, so here's their response. I, I, I share all that so you can maybe put yourself in their shoes. What they say is, are you kidding me? What did you just do? That was a year's worth of salary. Do you know what we could have done with that? Like Jesus, he has a real heart for the poor. Do you know how many poor people we could have served with that? What's wrong with you? Why would you be so wasteful? It says they were indignant with her. They talked down to her. They're like, what are you thinking? Why would you waste such a valuable gift on Jesus? They say this is absolutely crazy. Jesus' response, I love Jesus' response. He says, leave her alone. Leave her alone. Stop talking like that. Not only are you jerks right now, but more importantly, she's more right than you guys are. He says, leave her alone. Why are you, why are you troubling her? Don't you realize that she's done this beautiful thing for me? Now, the question I think we need to wrestle with is why would Jesus call this beautiful? Because it's one thing if he were to say, hey, guys, knock it off. You sound like jerks right now. Like, just, just don't. Have I taught you anything about the equality of humans that you wouldn't speak down to a woman like this? It would be one thing if that were all Jesus said. But he doesn't just say that. He says, leave her alone. But then he goes on to say she's done this beautiful thing. So he not only defends her like, oh, guys, it's okay. She's just a little charismatic. Calm down. Not what he says. What he says is she's done a beautiful thing for me. And otherwise, he defends her actions, extravagance at all, and he even chides his disciples for not sharing in her extravagance. Look at verse 7. He says, Do you realize where we are, fellas? I've told you three times that I'm coming to Jerusalem to die. I am not going to be with you much longer. And here you guys are discussing and arguing over fiscal policy. This woman, she saw a chance to express her love for me, and she did it. She held nothing back. She did whatever she could. In other words, like the widow from two weeks ago, she'd given everything she had to live on. And and that's why Jesus said her story is going to be told wherever the gospel is proclaimed in all the earth, including conquered California. It's another prophecy of Jesus' that turned out to be true. He said this story is going to be told because this woman, unlike you guys right now, she gets what's going on here. You call this a waste, I call this beautiful. And in his explanation that The fact that she gave everything she had, that's what he says is beautiful. In other words, it is the extravagance of her act that makes it beautiful. So, the very thing that the disciples said, that's crazy, Jesus is like, you're right, that's crazy. Isn't this awesome? What's wrong with you guys? You say that's crazy and you talk down to her. You should say that's crazy and you should tell her story because this woman's starting to get it. Why aren't you guys? I've been with you three years. This woman gets it far better than you. In other words, what he's saying is this is crazy, but this is what God wants for your life and for my life. I mean, think about what we've seen in Mark's gospel. What did we see a couple of weeks ago? What is the greatest commandment? To love God. And then, yeah, the second is to love others. They're very tied. But the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's what God wants from your life. Not to re-preach that sermon, but that's literally the most important thing. If you don't have that relationship right, you don't have a good life. It might seem good for a little while, but the pieces will come down, crashing down eventually. God wants a love relationship with you. This is what he made you for. That means God wants more than your intellectual belief. That means God wants more than your church attendance. That means God wants more than your activism for just social causes in the world. All of those can be good things. But if you think that's the primary thing God's after, you've missed the God that is revealed in Jesus Christ. Jesus says all those things are good and fine things, but those must flow from a love relationship with me. If they're not flowing from a relationship with me, you're going to burn out in those things and end up like Judas, doing three years of great service and betraying me in the end, and no one will want to name their kid after you in the end. God wants a relationship of love with you. And I'll just tell you this, if there's no crazy in your life, there's no love in your life. There's no crazy in your life, there's no love in your life. Um... One of you feels me on that. I'm glad that connects there. Let me use a story to maybe illustrate for the rest of us. Um, When I was dating Karen, there came a moment where I said, I got to marry this girl. Um, The problem for me was uh, I had no money. Um, So I thought about it, and I decided to sell the nicest thing I owned, a Gibson Les Paul. Wow, you guys connect with that one. We got a bunch of musicians in here. Uh, I'll use more musical analogies. All right. And if you don't know what that is, Google it later. Um, (laughs) So I decided to sell this for her, and I used the funds from that to buy her engagement ring. And so I bought her an engagement ring, and then I took her out to one of our favorite places in public, and I uh, sang her a song and proposed via singing rather than by speaking, which if you've heard me sing... You know that's crazier than selling the Les Paul. And and so, here, here's the point with all of this. Um, could I have simply, um, given her a ring from a vending machine. And proposed via a three point message that I thought up in my head rather than via song. Technically yes, but you're onto something. I don't know that she would have said yes. Because what would that say about my love for her? Like, yeah, I'm willing to be inconvenienced by 25 cents, or these days it's like 75 cents for a little toy vending machine thing. I'm willing to be put out almost a whole dollar, and to use my uh, talking thing that I love to do, I'm willing to just yap more at you. Like, I just don't know that that's very romantic. And though my singing was awful and out of key, there was something about the craziness of that. It, it worked. I, I can't tell you what Karen felt in that moment. All I can tell you is we're married. It worked. And so do you see Jesus' point here? He's saying it's the extravagance of this woman's activity that shows what she really loves. See, we all love something. We're going to see Judas love something. It, it ain't Jesus. This woman, she... Her extravagance shows what is really a treasure to her, and that's Jesus. Jesus is a treasure. And yeah, life savings are great. There's nothing wrong with having a rainy day fund. There's a lot of wisdom in investing for the next generation. But you know what's better than setting your kids up for success? is loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. He says, she's done a beautiful thing for me. In her craziness, we see her love expressed. And so, look, I, I think we tend to get this at a human level. Um, I think we we somehow get that in human relationships, that's why everyone's got a pretty great story of how they proposed. We get this at a human level, but for some reason, when it comes to God, I think we tend to settle for less. Where we come to the Christian life and we we think, okay, being a Christian... It's about having the right doctrine, about believing the right stuff. And it's about going to church on Sundays, and it's about doing the right things. However we subjectively define the parts of the Bible we like, whether that's, you know, feeding the poor or whatever activism cause that you like, you emphasize that one. And whatever ones you don't like, you say, those are the bad things. I don't want to do that. And so we go, yeah, being a Christian, it's about having some head knowledge. It's about going to some services. And then you do the right stuff, you don't do the wrong stuff. Which sounds like absolutely every other religion on the planet. And I think this is why so many people in our churches are bored. Um, I know this is why, at least for my own story, this is why I walked away from the church. Um, I grew up in the church, and um, I'm sure I heard the gospel preached. But what I heard was, um, hey, God's really powerful. If you do the good stuff, if you avoid the bad stuff... God will give you good stuff in the end. Um, and so I tried that for a while. And I thought, you know, this is really boring. If I want to feed the poor, there's a lot more fun ways. There's organizations out there I can feed the poor with that won't call me a sinner for doing the things I like to do on the weekend. There's a lot more exciting places I can go if that's what this whole thing is ultimately about. And so I ended up walking away. I'm like, if, if that's all that the church is offering, I think there's far better organizations to partner with and look maybe some of you are there right now um maybe some of you have someone in your life that you love that this has been their story that they grow up in the church and they get bored and they walk away from jesus going that's kind of good for you but that's not exciting to me And, and if you've been there if you're there right now i want you to look right at me there's so much more to jesus than you know There's so much more to Jesus than you know. And I say this with the experience of a runaway that decided Jesus was boring and walked away. I'm telling you, there's so much more to Jesus than you know. And I want to plead with you this morning not to settle down for some watered-down version of Christianity that's a little bit of church attendance and a little bit of social activism and has no real bearing on how you actually live your life and what happens when the big moments of life actually come. Don't settle for that because that ain't the Jesus of the Bible. That's the Jesus that we made up in church because he's far more comfortable than the real Jesus that actually wants to love us and walk with us in life. So please don't settle. If you're like, man, I'm bored. That's great that you're bored because that's the first indicator that you're realizing something's not right. Right? I just want to encourage you this morning. If you're bored, there's more to Jesus than you know. And if you were to this morning see Jesus as he really is, I promise you wouldn't be bored. I promise you wouldn't be bored. You see this all over the pages of the Bible. I've seen this in my life. You see this in countless stories throughout church history. When people encounter the living and risen Jesus, the reaction is not, yeah, I guess I could do 10 to 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings if the preacher doesn't go long. So I'm not going to go to Fair Oaks because you know that guy. Um, that's never the reaction. We'll, we'll get there. I keep pumping it. Mark 16, we're going to see Jesus walks out of the tomb. The reaction's kind of intense. The, the living Jesus, the real Jesus, inspires a lot more than half-hearted church attendance that tries not to do that one sin that we've been battling for several years and thinks that's the extent of the Christian faith. Jesus is so much bigger than that. And so if you're bored, I'm glad you're bored because... That ain't Jesus. There's so much more to Jesus than that. And look, I also want to say this. Um, I'm not saying that you're not trying to see Jesus. Maybe you feel like, man, I'm bored, but I'm in church, man. I've been here longer than you've been alive. I've been trying, and I'm bored. Don't you dare insult me by saying I'm not trying. I'm not saying that you're not trying. Um, What I am saying um, from my own experience and what I understand of the scriptures Maybe it's possible that for all of your effort, there's something in your life that is distracting you from seeing Jesus as he really is. And so you can be in church, you can, be in a, you can have the best small group leader in the world, you can have the son of God as your small group leader, and yet you can still be bored with Jesus and not see him for who he truly is, because that's Judas' testimony. And so so let's come back to our boy Judas now. We've spent some time in the middle of the sandwich. How is this supposed to help us understand what's going on with Judas? See, for Judas, this whole story, it's the final straw. After Jesus defends this woman and actually lifts her high as a model of virtue, Judas goes, I've had enough. He walks out. He goes to the religious leaders. He says, you want to kill him? Good. Me too. Me too. Would you give me some money? And they say, sure, we'll give you some money. And he betrays Jesus. And if you're still wondering, after all of this time, like, I don't get why Jesus would do, Judas would do that. That feels like a sharp turn. Let me read to you from John's gospel account. Because John, who is there for this event... He's the last of the four gospel authors to write down the story of Jesus. And so John's gospel has all this unique material that's not in the other three. He's like, hey, I'm about to die, and I want to make sure all these stories get out there. And so he gives us some important details that we did not have from the first three gospel authors. But he's an eyewitness. He was there at the event. And listen to what he says. This is in John chapter 12. Um, I think we'll have it on the screen here as well. This is the same story. This woman is anointing Jesus two days before the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, that's him saying, dear reader, not a good baby name. He who was about to betray him said, verse 5, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? So all of a sudden, the they of Mark that says the disciples were saying this, now we see, oh, there is an instigator at the heart of it. And for once, it's not our boy Peter running his mouth. It's Judas. Judas is the one that speaks up and cries foul and cries crazy. And then the other guys kind of join in with him. So Judas is the one that says, why wasn't this ointment sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now you might say, poor Judas. He's just misunderstood. He just values the poor more than Jesus. John knew you'd say that. Verse 6. He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Here's the primary difference between Judas and this woman. It's not that they're sinners. They both are. It's not that they need Jesus. They both do. The primary difference between Judas and this woman is that this woman's eyes are fixed on Jesus. By the way, I'll just give you this for fun. If you read John's account, you're going to learn some details about this woman that's going to make the story pop. I'm preaching Mark today, not preaching John, but I'd encourage that. What you'll see is this is not the first time this woman has been scolded for paying attention to Jesus. And by the way, it's not just men that scold her, it's her sister who scolds her. And yet every time Jesus defends her, he's like, this is the one woman that's getting it right. What's wrong with you people? Anyway, I'm preaching Mark. The primary difference between these two is that this woman is focused on Jesus and Judas is focused on the money bag. This woman loves Jesus. Judas loves money. And so they both come to Jesus. They both come with the posture claiming to be disciples, claiming to be learners. But Judas is coming to Jesus because he thinks this guy's popular. He's going to make lots of money. I can skim some money off the top. No one's going to notice. This woman comes to Jesus. Good. He alone has the words to life. He's good and beautiful beyond anything I'll find in this world. I don't know what I'm saving my money up for because my money can't buy what he's going to give me. That's the primary difference between them. Mary is focused on Jesus. Ooh, there's the John. Um, this woman's focused on Jesus. Judas is focused on the money bag. And, and I think this could be its own sermon. I think this is his own unraveling. That what begins with boredom will, if not left unchecked, eventually lead to exposing where your heart's been the whole time. And look, I'm not saying if you're bored, you're Judas, because here's the thing, all 12 of these guys are going to abandon, sorry, spoiler alert, all 12 of these guys are going to abandon Jesus in a few chapters. The difference is 11 of them see that sin, repent of it, and say, I have no hope but Jesus. Judas, the entire time, from beginning to end, had no repentance, no humility. He saw Jesus as a pawn to be used for his life. And so if you're bored with Jesus, I'm not saying you're necessarily Judas. I'm saying if left unchecked, that boredom may prove where your heart has been all along. And so this is a great time to check your heart. Not only is there more to Jesus than you know, but if you play these games with Jesus, which has been our theme for several chapters now, it's not going to end good for you. It's not just the religious leaders that get exposed. It's Judas, the church leader, the guy that was doing preaching and teaching that gets exposed. Jesus doesn't play games. Our works will be known in the end. And I said that could be a whole nother sermon. The difference between these two that I want to us to really consider today is their matter of focus. Mary's focused on Jesus. Judas is focused on the money bag. And and it's so easy to trash on Judas. Being like, come on, you sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver? That's it. Like That was the price of a common slave, just so you know. This was not some high price that he made out. Come on, Judas, what's wrong with you? But but here's what I will say. I believe that we are all like Judas at one level. And until you can see this, you'll never have the joy of this woman in this text. And we are all like Judas at one level. Listen to how D.A. Carson puts it. D.A. Carson has a phenomenal book where he talks about life and faith. And it's not even about this text, but I think he has something very insightful as we think about maybe what do I share in common with Judas? Um, listen to how he says it. So D.A. Carson's talking about sin, the essential problem of humanity. And he says this, it is the de of God. It is the creature swinging his puny fist in the face of his maker, saying in effect, if you don't see things my way, I'll make my own gods. I'll be my own God. This is also why in every sin, it is God who is the most offended party. As David himself Well understood. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. What makes sin most heinous in the first place is its offensiveness to God. He is always the most offended party. He's always the most offended party. See, um... Whenever we sin, what we're essentially saying, what we're essentially doing is we're selling out God. We're saying, I know you created me. I know you sent your son to save me and die for me. I know you've invested so much in me, but you know what? I don't care. I think I know better what's going to make me happy right now. And so rather than be grateful for the grace given to us, we say, I, I wish you were dead. I wish you weren't king of the universe. I wish you weren't around so I could be God and sit on your throne. And look, I know you're all good church-going people, so you would never say it that way. But isn't this what we're doing when we sin? I mean, is D.A. Carson a liar? No, he's just more honest than we are. See, when we sin, and I'm talking right now about sins of commission. There's sins of omission where you don't know And you sin anyway. I'm talking explicitly. You know what God said, you know what's going to lead to flourishing, and you choose not to do it anyway. How is that any different from what Judas is doing here? Saying, I wish you were dead. I wish you weren't around in the universe. I think I could do a better job than you. And look, I I don't point this out to shame you. We all do this. Your pastor does this. One of our values here is we're going to have real talk. We're never going to pretend to be more than we are. What the scriptures tell us is for all have sinned and daily fall short of the glory of God. We believe that God's grace is real, that our sin doesn't surprise him, that if we're honest, there's no sin he can't forgive. But sin that we hide and pretend doesn't exist, that sin, sin that's unrepented of, won't be forgiven because the essence of grace means you have to come with humility. So let's have some real talk this morning don't we do this church haven't we all sold out and betrayed jesus to our idols of sex and career and approval and power and comfort am i the only one that just sold out jesus here in my heart we've all done this and i, I don't say this to shame us but I, i'm telling you if you don't see that you've done that you won't understand the amazingness of the gospel Because in response to us selling them out and saying, I'd rather have these gods over my life than you, here's God's response. He sends his only beloved son into the world to chase after rebels and runaways. To chase after a bunch of Judases and say, they hate me. They're selling me out. They're serving false gods. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to save them because I love them. Are you kidding me? But this is the gospel that while we were still dead in our sins and trespasses, while we were still following the prince of the power of the air, which if you know what that means, while we were still following the devil... The Son of God entered the world and loved us and gave his life for us so that he could die in our place for our sins and say, come to me. I'll take your darkness upon myself. I'll trade you my righteousness so you don't have to follow the devil around anymore, so you don't have to worship false gods. I'm going to take your sin onto myself because I love you and I want you to have life. Satan came to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that you might have life and have it to the fold. Would you like to have life? That's God's response to our sin. And that's crazy, right? Uh, John, who's there for this? He, he will write in his gospel like, "Hey, it's one thing to love somebody who loves you. Bravo." Um, which I'm like, I don't know, John. It is. Karen loves me really well. It's sometimes hard to love. We've talked about that dynamic. Uh, I'm a broken human, and she loves me so well. But John says, no, that's junior varsity to love somebody who loves you. You know what's really hard? Try loving an enemy. Try loving someone that has nothing to offer you. And isn't this what God has done? The sovereign God and king of all things loves puny little humans like us that spend our days in idolatry, giving ourselves to false gods instead of him. Like, this is absolutely Crazy. If you think the gospel's not crazy, you need to take the plugs out of your ears this morning. There's no religion, philosophy, or worldview in the history of humanity that has ever made such an astounding claim. That God in eternity, in spite of all of your sin, not just in your past, the one that you walk in here struggling with this this morning, God in eternity looks at you and he's crazy about you. He's for you. He loves you. It's why he sent Jesus. It's why he brought you here this morning so he could say through my mouth, I love you. You haven't gone too far. Come home. My grace is real. Your sin is great, but my grace is greater still. That's the gospel. And if God has loved us with that kind of crazy love, does it make sense that our response would be anything but crazy? Do you see why this woman is the one person who has it all figured out? That in a room filled with the aroma from this ointment and everyone's going, this woman's nuts, Jesus is like, you guys need to tell her story. Because her crazy love for me shows. It requires an explanation, a gospel explanation of a God who would have a crazy, death-defying love for her. And, and I think that's the point of this whole story. You won't become like this woman by trying harder to love God more. I tried that for a long time. Let me just tell you this. You will not become like this woman by trying harder to love God more. You will become more like this woman as you focus more on the Jesus that her eyes were fixed upon. When you see the love of God for you, you won't be able to help but respond and say, are you kidding me that you do that for me? Of course I'll love you. Of course I'll follow you. Of course I'll give everything to you. What could be more beautiful than this? This woman's actions were beautiful because she saw a God who is even more beautiful and worthy of giving it all for. And that's how growth happens in our life. And so we're going to take some time now to begin doing just that to begin our response to this message where we fix our eyes on Jesus and ask him like would you help me to see the craziness of your love for me so that I might be filled with a crazy type of love that people go that's nuts about because that's what Jesus died to bring us and so as we begin that response we're going to do a few things you're going to have an opportunity to take communion uh, as we sing this last song together and Um, We'll talk about communion next week, but what you've got to know is this is a tangible, physical time to experience the truth of the gospel. That as we take the bread and the cup, the Holy Spirit, Scripture tells us, connects heaven and earth in such a way that Jesus is present and reclines at table, reclines at pew with us. So if you want to focus on Jesus this morning, if you've trusted him and you want to love him more this morning, I can't highly enough encourage communion to you where you would come and say, Jesus, I know that I am like Judas. I know that I have sinned against you. I know that I have betrayed you. Thank you for loving me anyway. Would you drive that truth home to my heart this morning? Because if that's true, that's got to change the things that I see in my life. As you do that, I believe this morning communion can be one of the most profound experiences you will have. Um, and, and I also, though, I do say we begin our response intentionally because, um, gosh, we said at the top of service, today was daylight savings. We, have, we are springing into a new season here. And I would just submit this to you. If you say this morning, hey, I want to have a crazy love for God, I just, my heart's not there. I want it to be there. I want to want that. I would say, number one, that's a sign the Holy Spirit's at work. Be encouraged. Um, But I would also say, this woman didn't get here by an accident that she had a life of sitting at the feet of Jesus. And so maybe for you, you say, this is the spring where just between now and summer, I want to give myself to a relentless pursuit of knowing him. I promise you, if you do that, you are going to find Jesus more beautiful and bigger than you know, and your life is going to respond in some crazy ways. Not because you have to, but when you see him, you can't help but respond. Let's pray. Jesus, you are beautiful. Thank you for your love for us. Um, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to help us. Jesus, we are not only finite where it's hard to understand the depths of your love, but we are broken by sin. We are so prone to believing that you love everyone but us. We are so prone to believing that you have conditions on your love, that it's only true if we can measure up. Would you send your Holy Spirit this morning to just amaze us with the depth of your love for us? Would you chase away the doubts we have of the extent that you have been willing to go through to give us life. Would you help us to believe the gospel more deeply? Would you help us to see you as you are, that we might respond with the type of crazy love that the people in our lives say, what's happened to you? We want that so badly. We want to be more alive. We know you came for this, so we just ask for your help. In your great grace, work this deeper in each and every one of us, I pray.